Welcome to Arts Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. We open with For the Love of Money by the OJs and we'll end with Monotonous by Eartha Kitt, bookending this Arts Interchange conversation about The Merchant of Venice, a play that asks in several ways, why am I so sad? One answer is money, another, boredom. Starting this Friday, October 28th, and running through November 13th, the Cardinal Stage Company presents Shakespeare's The Merchant of Venice with an all-female cast, reversing the gender casting used for the Elizabethan stage, which was the law of the land. I spoke with Cardinal Stage Artistic Director and Play Director Randy White and the actresses who play Shylock and Portia, Liz Pazic and Leslie Ann Handelman. Gender bending is a primary concern here, tracking closely to the theme of the play, what's on the outside may not be indicative of what's on the inside. All that glisters is not gold. We begin at the beginning. Why an all-female cast? I'm Randy White. I'm the artistic director at Cardinal Stage and the director of uh, this production of Merchant of Venice. I'm Liz Pazic, actor and playing the role of Shylock. I'm Leslie Ann Handelman, also an actor and playing the role of Portia. Well, first, uh, thank you. And let me just ask, what's up with the all-women cast? Um, well, I think that it started uh, with a very simple idea uh, of um, looking at our season and realizing that as a company that does uh, a mix of new plays and classics, that there is uh, a problem with gender uh, on our stage. And we, uh, in looking at issues of diversity, one of the things we identified was wanting to uh, get more roles for women. And, and we came up with um, this idea that we're going to actually reach for a 50-50 gender split on the cardinal stage and so if you're doing that and you are doing classic work you are in conflict <laughs> uh and so uh the decision was made to uh look at at uh, merchant as as possibly a play that we could consider doing all female and so when we looked at merchant and the issues in merchant uh around gender identity around gender construction uh as often in shakespeare comedies it made sense to put it together so gender parity Gender opportunity, you know, so that uh, actors get a chance to play roles that they uh, don't necessarily get to play. And then, you know, it made sense in the single sex environment of Shakespeare's time that we would just invert that and look at a single sex environment from the other side. That said, even though these are all women, we are in a world where gender exists. And so they are playing men and playing women. And finally, I would just say that... Um, Everybody in this play, uh, including the women who are playing men uh, and the women who are playing women, also get to play men. They put on men as part of inside the play. And so gender is constructed in all kinds of different ways in the play. And that's just kind of interesting. That is interesting. So um, as you say, it's a reversal of the original setup of Shakespeare's uh, theater, I suppose, right? So all men played mm -hmm. that. So does it not really have much of an effect in terms of the play itself, right? Like, that's... It's, it's, it's a fabulous question, and I have no idea yet. 
<laughs> I, I mean, I really don't know how this is going to play with an audience yet. I know that um, it's very accepted in our culture that you can still have a company like Cheek by Jowl uh, play an all an all male version of um, uh, of a Shakespeare comedy, and people don't come in questioning it. They're like, of course, all the men are playing it. They're going to play camp. Camp is a, an accepted part of our our vocabulary. And I think where we are in American theater right now is it, with regards to gender is where we were 35, 40 years ago with regards to race. And, you know, we're at a place now where unless race is, a you know, a, a, a stated issue in the play, it's pretty much accepted that you can cross uh, racial ethnic boundaries and people will accept it. And I think that's where we're going to be moving in terms of gender. So in terms of this play, um, I, you know, I can turn it over to the to the actors and, and they can talk a little bit about it in terms of what it is to play it, what we expect the audience to perceive. I'm, I'm at a point in rehearsal now where I'm not really seeing it as much. I mean, I'm just looking at characters. So, you know, if Liz is in front of me, she's Shylock. And uh, it's only in the courtship stuff that you really start to go, oh, yeah, those are two women uh, here. And what, what does it mean for one woman to be playing a woman and the other one to be putting on the, the sort of um, identity of male to be the aggressor in the situation or the assertive person in the situation and those sort of identities, that's where you you, so you really see it. It really calls into question what it is to be female and male on the stage as we understand them, mm -hmm. those roles. But we're not playing them as females playing males, right? You're you're playing a male character. You're in, You're trying to then be a male? Is there a way in which you become a male when you play a character? <laughs> um, physically, perhaps. <laughs> I mean, we can't change who we are, of course, uh, but uh, we can change our gait. We can, we can change where we sit as far as vocally is concerned, but still I approach the character as, you know, Shylock is who he is. And, um, but that's, that's how we physically do it. And we also, you know, of course we have makeup and of course we have, um, uh, costumes. Uh, again, I can't necessarily hide who I am, but it will help. And it will, it also helps me those aspects or aspects, as we say in Chicago, <laughs> um, they inform me as to who I am. So Shylock, the Jew, how he walks with his fellow Jews is different, perhaps, than how he would walk next to a Christian or how, how on guard he is. Mm. Now, is that male? Not necessarily. Certainly I feel that as a woman, but how, but then this is, it's informative mm. as, you know, that's a little easier to play than perhaps Caitlin, who is Bassanio and is the love interest of our of our friend Leslie here, mm -hmm. um, so yeah. Did no, I answer your question? No difference in line readings. Like you don't think differently about how one might phrase something because you wanted to be want to think of it in a female way. Is there such a thing when you when you read these these no, words? No, not for an actor. I don't think so. I think the intention is still there. Um, I, I, and also, it, it depends. You know, it, it depends on you know, am I the powerful character? in the in the scene mm -hmm. you know so then perhaps yes i mean i would just add two things to that the you know uh, physicality has been part of our world we've had a movement person working with us it's been a lot of fun watching the women right. on stage go oh yeah if you change the position of your pelvis and walk more in the way that guys walk you take up different kind of space in the room that's true uh, you know that kind of stuff has been real fun 
gender identity in the play too is also plays across ages. You know, different at different ages we identify differently in, inside our genders and what what we're attempting to pursue at that point in our lives. And I would just say that it's only been a couple times that I've brought up the the sense uh, in in the production where I've said in rehearsal. I think if we th- if we just take a step back here and look at this as as a as a male character and what that male character is trying to accomplish in a couple of places things like where I've said you know your instinct as uh, an actor of a female gender mm. uh is to want to try to come to an accommodation with that line you've tried to reach across Correct. to make yeah. a kind of instinctive way of bringing that person into your argument I'm not sure that's where that male character is coming from because men can sometimes come at it from a different point of view. But it usually has to do what I notice on stage is that women uh, instinctively in, in a number of places have reached for accommodation where ma- male actors would not have done that. Hmm. That that has been my, my largest sort of like observation in the rehearsal process. Hmm. That's uh, interesting to think about too. You mentioned gender, and obviously we we've lived we live now in a time where gender is uh, ex- uh, expressed more fluidly, I suppose, and we talk about it in those ways as well. Is there necessarily a male or female way to play things? Like uh, if if we're thinking this, we're going to be true to Shakespeare, which I don't know what that means generally. But uh, do we do we keep it in those roles? Is it necessary to do so to make it a male, or does it matter? Let's. I, I guess there's a part of this that you know I think hearing you talk about the perspective of uh, the stage itself opening up the job of theater the job of acting it's a great way to put it is different than than what happens in the play itself necessarily Mm -hmm. you're still putting on merchant of venice and you're going to try to be faithful to your understanding of it Uh, you're not doing anything necessarily different to it but I, i would i would agree with all of that across the board okay okay um so as portia Yes, (laughs) as Portia, Uh, you don't have to be a man. Well, I do in in the trial scene. Mm. I actually do. Oh, that's that's true. That's true. Nice. Nice. Excuse me. Um, you know, it's so great. There's there's Portia has a line earlier in the play: "A maiden hath no tongue but thought." Mm -hmm. So there's this idea that well, girls can't really say what they're thinking, but they sure can think it. Mm -hmm. And then there's this great opportunity to you know put on a pair of pants and really take the room and say all the things and use your, you know, brilliant feminine wiles and smarts and have this um, power that comes with being a man in this world that we're, we're living in, in the play. Mm -hmm. It's great fun. And, you know, while I don't think I play the lines any differently as girl dressed as boy, um, I think there's, Physically, you can command the space in a different way. Vocally, you can command the space in a different way and try to you know, sink your proverbial claws into the other characters to get what you want in a different way when the world around you sees you as a man, sees you as this powerful figure versus sees you as a girl who's only allowed to think things. Mm-hmm. Well, that's an interesting thing, too. I had not thought that uh, about the sort of play within a play. Again, it's a Shakespearean trope, I suppose, uh, common to it within the, the stage staging of the the court scene is is in a sense a play in itself right so you mm-hmm. come on and hold forth in some sense and uh are trying to embody what the law is or you know there's there's definitely a performative aspect to what Porsche is doing here not just not just trying to get uh to help out but to yeah. perform to be something mm-hmm. else right mm-hmm. 
Well, that whole question of being something else is so interesting. And I, I, the play reaches its sort of height of um, gender uh, identity confusion uh, in our production when Jessica gets dressed up as a boy to escape from her uh, her father's house. Yeah, Jessica so, is Portia. Portia uh, is uh, Shylock's, Shylock's daughter. daughter. Right, right. So you have a woman getting dressed up as a boy to escape her father's house and into the arms of Lorenzo, who is a woman playing a male, right? So you have someone in the meta context of the play mm. crossing gender and you have someone <laughs> inside. So you have, and he kisses her. So, so you have a woman playing a man and a woman playing a boy inside the play and they come together and there's this mustache moment and they're just confused as to whether they should take the mustache. Is it two boys kissing or is it two girls kissing or is it a girl and a boy kissing? Hmm. Who's kissing, right? And at some point you're like, this is glorious uh, because you're calling into question the very assumptions that we make in terms of boys and girls and and how we identify those characters and the romantic control of the situation. So I, I, at some point I just throw my, I threw my arms up in the air and rehearsal. I went, I can't even track who's playing what anymore. This is fabulous. Mm-hmm. Um, right. Well, it is a, an essential part of the play, the the appearance versus what's inside. The that's exactly what the whole, you just, you bravo. Absolutely. <laughs> Thanks, everyone. Well, because the whole, I mean, one of the reasons we chose this play is because of the semester mm. uh, topic at IU, which is on beauty. And the essential question in in, in Merchant is, um, you know, the whole question of the casket test, right? Mm-hmm. And the question mm-hmm. of uh, all that glisters is not gold. And the idea that um, don't, and it's, it's repeated throughout the play. In every context of the play, Shakespeare reiterates the idea that the surface is only the surface, and you cannot judge by that surface, or you, if you end up judging by that surface, you will ultimately make um, choices that will not be necessarily true to the to the truer nature of what it is that you're supposed to be choosing, mm-hmm. right? So, in some ways, the, it was a very conscious choice on our part in, in doing an all female cast is part of that semester mm-hmm. question on what is beauty mm-hmm. is is wrapped up in in that. So, form and function all meet in some kind of way. Mm-hmm. Well, interesting within the context of this particular play, which wraps everything so much into its gold uh, veneer and its um, its attempt to mix trade and finance together with uh, the usurer and the merchant, right? The play originally is often called the Merchant of Venice or the Jew of Venice at the same time. So, yeah. you know, these are confusions generally. And so within beauty, it's interesting to think of it as a, a beauty, you know, a topic of beauty mm-hmm. within the, the sort of bulk of it being about money as much as anything else and how we get our money and whether that's a good or bad way to get your money, right? So the, the Jew is a usurer and that's bad. You mm-hmm. know, the merchant trades and profits and that's good. Well, you're looking at a culture, you know, that, that is essentially what, that Shakespeare is in, in one of the few examples of his actually sort of um, riffing on his own period um, as opposed to like overtly so as opposed to plays that are set in different periods and different times mm-hmm. merchant looks at the emerging capitalist structure uh, of the early modern period and calls into question the the essential uh, issues of capitalism mm-hmm. right the question of, of usury the question of interest the question of the entire structure of how we're going to organize 
um, as as we talked about in rehearsal, as Hamilton does the musical, you know, where Jefferson and Hamilton are at odds over whether we're going to have a, a landed aristocracy or we're going to have a modern capitalist system. How are we going to organize ourselves? That's the argument of of Merchant and and that sort of um, surface quality uh, of money and the surface and 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 as as identified in gold, a sort of ancient valuation of things Mm -hmm. versus a merchant contemporary valuation and interest being charged on capital, which is an entirely different structure. Those are the things that are at odds in the play and fighting each other. And, and, and the tension of it is, 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 I was going to say horrific, still come to the play because it's, it's still a comedy. (laughs) Um, but that's, that's the thing that's in conflict in the play and not resolved in the play. That's what's so great about it. Yeah, I'd say it was not um, – it's funny. It's a comedy that is not allowed to be one in some sense, right? The, the comedy is uh, painful in many ways. So Shylock – Don't don't say that. It is a comedy. It, well, you, it you is should. an absolutely hilarious breakdown <laughs> okay. funny comedy. Right. We'll cut that part. That turns <laughs> that turns into something quite uh, quite. Well, you've got you – know, obviously, you've got a pound of flesh coming, right? So, yeah. the, I mean, yeah. there is – and that's, that's that what seems to start out as a joke or start out even as a way in which Shylock meets Antonio in his place. You know, I I don't need I don't need interest on this. I'll do it the way you do it, right? And it turns into something else. So we've got a, a, a usurer, Shylock, Antonio a tr- uh, in trade. Portia gets her money via inheritance, also fraught with you know being a man and a woman there because her her father won't let her actually get to choose her husband. She gets money if she does things his way. Uh, we got Bassanio who's borrowing and marrying money, right? <laughs> and then Jessica who steals it. And then actually gets it via the courts. So the, all these ways in which money is gotten or ill-gotten, right? And it sort of seems interesting within the context of the play, a play which is that starts out as a depressed environment, right? I, I don't know why I'm, I'm so, so sad. sad. Right? On, on both levels, both Portia and, mm-hmm. and Antonio. Well, three or four, maybe five characters start out in that. Why, when shall we laugh? Yeah, yeah. You know, we there's just this sense that this is not a happy place because... Money generally, it seems like, right? That's that's how I'd read it, I suppose. So oh, I think it's I think you're absolutely on on the on the, yeah. on the money. So we've got, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good one. Um, well, let's start with actually let's start with Shylock since we'll start with the beginning of the play or where the play comes from. Shylock being upset with Antonio, right? Being uh, saying, you know, why is why is he treating me this way, <clears throat> right? So. You know, this is a classic speech in in Shakespeare, along with Portia's speech. These are two probably, you know, fantastically well-known speeches. The Shylock's, you know, a Jew has eyes, uh, you know, if you prick him, he bleeds, that kind of thing. So <clears throat> is there a sense in which Shylock, for you in this particular play, um, is a, a sympathetic character? I mean, he's been played as a monster throughout history. He's been played as sympathetic. Do you have a sense of, you know, what you guys want out of Sh- Shylock? I don't, I don't know if you want to tell me how you're interpreting it, but... Well, how you expect Shylock to be seen. Right. Well, yes, I think you hit it historically. Also, I think in Shakespeare's time, the Jew also was looked as a buffoon as as well. Um, and a, a lot of the scenes, you can actually hear the rhythm of, of Shakespeare doing that. Mm. So in some of the scenes, I need to fight against that. But there's also, the rhythm is also a lilt of... Hebrew as well, I believe. Mm. Um, it's easy to hit just, just a lot because mm-hmm. if you do too much, then it becomes a caricature. We don't want to do that either. Um, uh, so 
Give me your question again. I don't know Doug. what it was. You know, I talked for like ten minutes saying nothing. So well, I, I just just to throw just to throw a thought back yeah. here, uh, Liz is you know we we've been working on the play, and and one of the things that I sort of discovered out of the trial scene, and the first time we did the trial mm. scene, um, I, I I was trying to figure out how do we understand Shylock? Like how do we understand his behavior? And on some level, I understand it. On some level, I understand that this is a man who's been pushed beyond rational faculties. And then how do we represent that? Like, how do we find it? And we, we make a move in the play that I think is, is useful, I hope is useful, which is there's a second Jew on the stage, which is Tubal, Tubal. Um, beyond Jessica. So there's, there's three. Mm-hmm. Um, Tubal is at the trial scene. And I, and I put him in the trial scene because I was like, I, I know we need him somehow. And then figured out that it could be really useful if in the middle of the trial scene, at some point when Jessica, when uh, uh, Portia has given Shylock every opportunity to walk back from that bond, to walk back from that contract, and and even though we understand his his desire for revenge, we understand his anger, that he he he, it becomes the tragedy of Shylock, mm-hmm. right? That he cannot walk back from it, and we understand it. But what historically has happened, I think, is that. Shylock has been seen as representative of Jews. Mm-hmm. And that's where you get into a problem, right? That's where you get to the point where you're like, Shakespeare's clearly saying here, that's how people have, you know, have, sure. have, have marked it in, in, in Nazi Germany, for example, that Shakespeare is saying this, that, that he's a monster because he's a Jew. And I would argue he's a monster because he's lost control. Mm-hmm. And so having Tubal walk out of the scene and clearly say, I'm not part of this, hopefully, changes that dynamic and makes it the tragedy of an individual mm. and not the tragedy of a culture mm. right or or the or the um the uh, um uh, in, in you know damning of a culture mm. the, 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 which is what we were working on last night right there still is going to be that of course sure. um but you know shylock um you know, there's a lot of things in the play that that help me as a care as an actor playing Shylock. So I'll just say I'm Shylock. As Shylock, I I am. You know, I, I'm a Jew. I'm an older Jew. I get. I'm also a, a, a man. So yes, I get to I get to come out of the ghetto and walk around and actually do business. Uh, but it's. You know, I still get spit on. I still get kicked. Um, <clears throat> it's it's not unlike so many other things that have happened in our own culture, in our own life, in my own lifetime, mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> and certainly in my parents' lifetime. I remember my mother telling me um, when my father was in the army in in uh, in the World War Two, and. He was a baker, and they they were stationed in Tyler, Texas. And with the, she had just gotten married, and she took a train down to um, Texas. And halfway at the Texarkana line, the woman she was sitting next to, who happened to be black, had to go into the last car of the train. And my mother was appalled to know about things like that. Mm-hmm. And then uh, black people that worked with my father in the army, and his and their wives and children when like a sergeant was coming down the street that also was my father's sergeant would make them get into the street because he because they were walking on a sidewalk mm. um that was that's very clear to me and i always remembered that 
when I was a kid. Well, it's interesting that, you know, you asked me earlier about what scene you want. And there's no question that this play is entirely built around the trial scene. I mean, the mm -hmm. trial scene is the, the climax of this of this play in terms of its dramatic power. And and this thing that, you know, we're talking about here, where you have the brilliance of a, a, a legal structure that must be adhered to within the context of people who have various um, power, uh, uh, there's a power dynamic in various hierarchies within that legal structure. And so the argument in the trial scene about whether we're going to follow the law or not follow the law, whether we're going to alter the law so that the alien outsider is condemned in the way they need to be condemned so we can uphold the larger cultural construction right. is fabulous. I mean, it's an, an unbelievably uh, complicated legal argument. And at the same time, uh, an unbelievably fraught uh, acting dynamic, right? Playing it because we, we're just coming out of this scene last and we spent four hours on it. And trying to figure out and, you know, maybe, you know, Portia's, Portia's understanding that there is, there are multiple levels of complexity as there have been in any historical situation in which you have people trying to pretend that there's a law that we're all agreeing to. But at the same time, there are certain things that need to happen by the end mm -hmm. in order for everything to be sustained. Yeah, you know, I, I think in a perfect world, Portia would walk into the courtroom and go, okay, Shylock, be a nice guy. And Shylock would say, Okay, fine. We'll tear it up. Like, let's just say this never happened. Let's right. move on. Let's right. start from I pushed new... it just so far, you know. And then Shylock doesn't say that. Shylock says, oh, no, no, no. I want what I'm owed. So then, okay, well, what's tactic number two? All right. Now I got to rile the masses to get them to stand behind me on this platform of, well, look what's written in law. These are the laws. So... I guess this this is the way that the train is headed. And then the crowd sort of rallies and then she can really go in for the kill and say, well, ooh, guess what? Yeah, she set him up. Mm -hmm. Yeah, But I think the, the hope really is that people will be good and that she can really just walk into that courtroom and say, hey, Shylock, he made a mistake. Mm -hmm. He's owning up to it. We good? And Shylock will say, yep, mm -hmm. happy Tuesday. <laughs> But what happens? What happens when you have a culture? I mean, this is this is the conflict of the play, right? In the in the in the in the, in the, in the new emerging legal and capitalist system, there are now contracts, mm -hmm. there are now bonds, there right. are, there are there are and, now legal structures that are new and different. And one of the lines that I say to him early on is, "Presently, I will be with you because I'm going to have this contract with you. I can, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm that will be a step up, and I get, I as Shylock get to lean on the law." Mm -hmm. The law is the law. Yeah. Well, there are periods where you. I had you my see, day in court. Yeah. You, well, there are periods where you see you think there's there is this place where you you feel the character coming close to uh, a kind of uh, kinship in that space where you can agree to not have interest. You can't. So, and Shylock comes to Antonio and says. I'm going to do what you do, and then I will be like you in many ways. And then you cannot look down on me in the same way you look mm -hmm. down on me. Exactly. Right? So an attempt to come to him on that space, Christian and Jew. The Christian, uh, unfortunately, it's interesting. The play is really hard um, to see a positive view of, of the Christian in the play, right? So the play, we read the play, or we hear the play, mm -hmm. uh, any, anybody says Merchant of Venice and says Shylock, you think, you know, Shylock and the Jew, and that's the problem. But the problem in the play is with Christianity as much as anything else. Money and Christianity are the negatives in the play generally, right? So when we come to this, um, with, when we come to Portia saying, 
the quality of mercy. I forget the rest of it. I should know the rest of it, right? Quality of mercy is not something I wrote it Strain. down. Strain. Yeah, thank That's Yeah, okay. <laughs> anyway, let's pretend like I knew it. Um, you do have her saying, this is okay. You don't need, we don't need to have these problems, right? But she's also doing it because she's got a plan, right? Is there eloquence there that comes out of her that's not a part of the plan? I mean, she clearly goes through the, the situation in order to stick him with the verdict that he gets what he gets. Please do go ahead and let, you know, Shylock should take his pound of flesh. But if he does, right, if he does these things, it forfeits everything for himself by law. Right. So she's setting him up all Mm -hmm. along. But this particular speech (coughs) seems heartfelt. Right. Seems to come out of someplace else than a a design. Mm -hmm. You get a sense for that when you read it or when you perform it? Very much so. I I think there's a lot of uh, a lot of stuff that can be paralleled between the the trial scene and uh, the choosing of the caskets. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, Portia says to Bassanio, I could teach you how to choose right, but then I am forsworn. Mm-hmm. Well, Shylock, I could teach you how to do the right thing, mm-hmm. but you need to learn to do it for yourself. So there's the, the like, I'm going to give you choices and I'm going to try to point you in the direction of what I believe is the right choice or what society believes is or what everybody in the courtroom believes is the right choice. But I can't make you choose that. Mm-hmm. Well, um, this this seems <coughs> difficult, really, for me. I think that there's generally the not a confusion, but the sense of trying to understand each character <coughs> as being like a casket themselves, right? So if you if you can imagine, each character is a gold casket or a silver casket or a lead casket, right? So is Portia a golden casket? You know, is she a silver casket? This is uh, this is just a, a way to think about it, I suppose. And what's inside a Portia, right? She is she is like the rest of this class, bored, right? She, uh, I think uh, even Jessica, uh, even even Jessica says, you know, this this world is tedious, right? So we're in this place where they're bored and making things happen. In a sense, how can I be interesting? This is a part of the motivation, I think, throughout the play, right? So if I'm acting, am I an empty casket? Am I also, you know, gilded on the outside of this situation? Right? So that's part of how everyone is in the play to me. Like, I'm just trying to figure out who is real in the play. Who is the most lead, I suppose, versus who's the most gold? I just rambled on again. I'm sorry. The... Is that, that's a, that's an, it's an interesting question. I mean, we, we haven't looked at anything along those lines. I mean, I, I, I tend to think that, you know, the, the person who's, who's sort of most aware of themselves is Shylock, mm-hmm. you know, is the person who's sort of most aware that they, they shouldn't be. They should be making other choices, and yet they're not, and, do the, and, do, and does so consciously uh, as, they, as they sort of lose their grip. But, but he is aware that he's doing so. Mm-hmm. Um, so in terms of, you know, lead or, or gold or, I mean, I, I think that the larger question is, is how do you make choices based on what you see versus what's, you know, what's what you're going to find when you peel it back, mm-hmm. um, which is, you know, the thing that, that sort of ties all this together is, is the ring test, mm-hmm. you know, at the end of the play. And, you know, Portia doesn't only offer choices to those folks, you know, that, that we already talked about. But also, you know, sort of does the same thing with Bassanio, and that's the sort of final questioning of of um, 
what 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 our choices are and what our what our values are and what we swear to and what oaths we take and uh, how we how we break those things along the way uh, and the damage done. Yeah, it's um, it's again, I, it's a great play, right? So it was so when when you you cautioned earlier not to to have the audience that listens to this interview be be worried about being depressing play or uh, but it's the greatness of the play that it has so many of these issues in it, right? And then still is like couched within a a marriage plot or you know this this comical aspect that it has, and within it is the thing that it, that you're almost not seeing. You know, it's keeping a secret from you by having all this fun stuff go on, all these things that we imagine as comedy. And then beneath it or within the casket is the, is the truth of the play, which is so full of, of this, I don't know what to call it. It's not just on we, right? But well, it's, well, it's just life on life's terms and, yeah. and, and reality. And what's, what's so powerful about the play is like Randy said before, it's not, not that anything is necessarily solved mm-hmm. except that it stays the same. You know, and, and we, and you get to come out as audience members, hopefully, and discuss. Right. I mean, that's the power of choose, theater. Right? This is your casket. You get to choose. Yes. Right? I mean, casket? we get to, we get to discuss what just happened in the play. I mean, we as actors go and, you know, and go for drinks and just dis- continue to discuss because there's so many different choices. <laughs> so, uh, you know, one of the things that's interesting is I've seen probably, I don't know, seven or eight Midsummer Night's Dream, Midsummer Night's Dream. Uh, Midsummer Night Dreams, um, and every single one, no matter its quality, has has a, a level of satisfaction to it. It's a perfect play. It 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 wraps itself up in its own uh, its own little world, and it concludes. And no matter whether it's a high school production in which they achieve at a certain level, or professional production, which often is less. Uh, magical than that high school production, you find yourself walking out laughing and walking out of that show with ease. It's just it's a it's a perfect play. Merchant's a little more difficult, and I've 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 recently saw a production of Merchant, a, a, a very high end production of Merchant, where I was I was I was so unhappy, uh, I was so sad at the production, and I I thought it, it was so sort of pontificating and and uninteresting and so mired in Shylock's misery. That I that I, I was just it didn't draw me in, and then I saw I've seen it three or four other times, including when I saw it at the Old Globe in London, where I was literally falling on my knees laughing because I was standing uh, in the pit, and it was one of the funniest things I've ever seen. And and it's a it's a play that has just a whole bunch of range of dynamic, and it's almost inconceivable to me that the same writer that wrote Midsummer in almost the same period wrote Merchant, mm. because they're just so unbelievably different plays in terms of their interests, in terms of their desires uh, uh the, 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 the 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 desire for the playwright to come to a conclusion is so different in the two plays mm-hmm. um it's it's beyond understanding how one person did that <laughs> and and i really am having worked on both plays now i i'm convinced that they were written on the table at the same time mm-hmm. there's so many things that so are repeated parallel. mm-hmm. uh, paralleled lines that are lifted out of midsummer or lifted out of merchant that are repeated and just inverted in the yeah. other play well it's interesting too to see it against romeo and juliet too which i think comes which right also after. right at the same, yeah. same yeah. period yeah and to imagine portia and juliet you know, being so different um, in in their conception as well. Um, you know, one is not an actor. Uh, I don't. I don't think Juliet's not an actor. I think she's full of something that we get re- a real something. You know, and Portia's still in that 
You know, and it's almost adolescent. I'm not really sure exactly what it is. It's still like trying to make the world okay or make her world interesting in some sense. And yet all three plays, what's interesting about all three plays is they're all interested in essentially the same question, right? Which is how do we, how do we, um, move forward in our, in our attempts to, um, find our place in the world and to uh, essentially break bonds and make new bonds, break those same sex bonds mm -hmm. and make new bonds. Mm -hmm. That's all Midsummer's about is breaking mm -hmm. up that quartet. It's all um, Merchant's about is breaking up the, the three boys, mm -hmm. breaking up the Nerissa Portia relationship, making all of those and sort of recombining those in the comedic sense. And so is Romeo and Juliet, sure. right? And mm -hmm. so you have a pure flat out comedy. You have a I don't know what you want to call Merchant. It's a comedy, tragic comedy, whatever you want to call it, a complicated comedy, a problem comedy, and you have a tragedy. All three are Shakespeare looking at the same issue and coming to radically different, uh, coming at it from radically different forms and structures uh, to keep, just keep pegging at that same question. Well, that's the the question, right, of of what we are, you know, how we how do we show ourselves, right? It's interesting that Lorenzo, I think it's uh, scene, uh, act five, scene one, well, I don't think so, I wrote it down, so hopefully it's right, um, says what I guess is probably the truth of the situation, right? He uh, speaks um, to Stefano, I guess, uh, is right. He says, how sweet the moonlight sleeps upon this bank. Here we will sit and let the sounds of music creep in our ears, soft stillness, and the night become the touches of sweet harmony sit jessica look how the floor of heaven is thick inlaid with patines of bright gold there's not the smallest orb which thou beholdst but in his motion like an angel sings still choiring to the young-eyed cherubins such harmony is in immortal souls but whilst this muddy vesture of decay doth grossly close it in we cannot hear it it's the it's the key speech in the play. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah. crazy that you you identified it because I think that is the that is the piece that I, identifies what the whole play is talking about yeah. in terms of the muddy vesture of decay and this idea of there's something more beautiful. There's something that is the speech that we that I chose the play for Themester's beauty mm. is because of that and how difficult it is to hear it, mm. how difficult it is to see it, how difficult it is to understand it within this muddy vesture of decay. Our own bodies, our own corporeal selves here in the world. Yeah. It's a glorious speech. It is a glorious speech. And I first heard it on WKRP on Venus Flytrap. In Cincinnati. Venus huh? Flytrap did it and, and, and introduced, you know, some piece of 70s nice. slick pop soul. And, it, and I was like, that's a good piece of writing. Where that's, is that from? That's pretty hilarious. Yeah. Nice. Well, it's also, Marissa, it's interesting, too. I think in, in Shakespeare, you often get the truth from the characters that are kind of not cast off, but from a lower class, right? You get you get the truth. Marissa, after after Portia says, fabulous character. Yeah, after Portia says, I, I, I don't know why interest. I'm so, uh, she also says something like, I'm sad, right? My little body is a weary of the great world or this great world. Nerissa says, you would be, sweet madam, if your miseries were in the same abundance as your good fortunes are. And yet, for aught I see, they are as sick that surfeit with too much as they that starve with nothing. So, again. How does that affect Portia? Uh, so, the thing that we talked about in rehearsal was it's, it's Nerissa getting on her soapbox again to go, come on. Right. Put your big girl pants on. Come on. <laughs> I think there's there's the, the part where you hear, yes, this you are right. That is right. And then there's the part where you go, oh, I don't even want to hear that. I just want it to be okay for me to be a normal person who's really just over this whole thing. Mm -hmm. Well, the interesting thing is that she says, right, good sentences and well-pronounced, mm -hmm. right? Which she'd say to herself probably in the trial scene, right? Good sentences, well-pronounced. But Nerissa then says they'd be better if well-followed, mm -hmm. right? And she says, well, it's easy. <laughs> it's, it's, it's easy, easy to, to, say to these tell things, me what to right? do. It's hard but to do. But you that. do it. <laughs> But, but the beauty of uh, the beauty of Shakespeare, 
that's what a stupid sentence. <laughs> in terms of working on Shakespeare, the thing that just bats you in the back of the head over and over again is that he's a playwright. And what I mean by that, for me, a playwright is someone who writes a scene. Mm -hmm. And by the end of that scene, you know, Portia walks into that scene saying, I'm a weary of this world and walks out of the scene going, you know, I'm going to do what my father wants me to do. So she literally walks into the scene going, I don't know if I can do this. I don't want to do this. And Nerissa through this and a couple of other ways in which she questions and challenges Portia has Portia insisting that she will father her, follow her father's dictum, which of course is a question of beauty, right? It's a question of the right person will understand the right casket, will understand the right question of how to read that surface mm. and come to the right conclusions, which will marry together. Nerissa, the secondary character, entirely drives the entire structure of the play by pulling Portia back onto uh, the track. That's a playwright. Mm -hmm. Like that's somebody who understands how you begin how you move forward, how character drives plot and the whole thing at the end, you've, you spent four minutes together and you're in a completely different place than you were four minutes ago. That's theater, mm -hmm. right? And, and it's, it's not, not a lot of playwrights get that sure. on that level sure. all the time. Well, there's, there's obviously the, the clue to him being a poet as well within here, right? So, uh, yeah. Shylock is, you know, Shylock, as I think we expressed already, is a guy that kind of loses, loses it, right? Frequently, right? There, he loses it and he's justified frequently in losing it and he loses his sense of self, his sense of self even. And in this speech, you, you just see him unravel, you know, into the, into this, you know, what am I that I, I shouldn't have some, some some human kindness from people right and i think part of shakespeare that's interesting too is that characters kind of just lose it you know yeah. that there it's it almost pushes the play in directions that you weren't even close to prepared to go or to understand or see a, a character in a different way and complicate your again your very theater oriented sense of the world or your own you know your what do we call it confirmation bias now right uh that this this play is full of confirmation bias a christian a jew a christian a jew money this money that now how do we undermine it well i'd like to think that it undermines confirmation bias is actually what i what i would say but you know the great thing about that speech that i i adore about that speech is you end up having the great argument the great argument in all of literature for understanding the other that's not a jew eyes that's not does not a jew believe you prick us all of that ends with and i will exact revenge right the whole argument that's placed on the table by shylock is completely undermined by shylock by the end going but I'm going to screw you over because you've screwed me over. Well, the Christian taught him how to do it. Exactly. Right. It's brilliant. Absolutely right, brilliant. Right. I do want it to is brilliant writing. <laughs> and Shakespeare's choice of words, his understanding of every word. I mean, picture it. He's writing this, and he's not only writing the words, but also the, the punctuation, which informs the actor of that time where they go, what they do next, because they were literally given these sides. Mm -hmm. You know, he, he would write it and say, okay, let's try this. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So, it, 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 brilliant. I, I do mean, want to take back never... one thing I said. I said sure. not a lot of playwrights do that. That's, I don't mean that at all. <laughs> there are many brilliant playwrights, right. but it's the mark of a really fantastic playwright and a mature playwright to understand how, how the scene works at that level. I love playwright. You guys want to say anything in particular about your characters or, um, you know, what you want or what you hope the audience has come to see? I hope they come to see the play. Sure, of course. Yes, I hope. I I also hope they come to see the play so that they can experience what what uh, hopefully we will 
bring to it. Mm-hmm. Anything interesting in the uh, staging in general? Um, standard no, period really, piece? It's or? really boring. <laughs> uh, no, it no. is not. Uh, it's set in the 20s. Yeah, okay. which is cool. Oh, and, okay. and 20s Italy, so it's sort of oh. early proto-Mussolini mm, fascist nice. that's only glanced at in a couple okay. of places. Okay. Uh, but it gives it a kind of context for sort of emerging wow. anti-Semitism. Mm-hmm. Uh, and David Higgins did the set, and the set is glorious. Uh, the costumes are um, uh, by Ella McKay, and they are inspired by Coco Chanel, the sort of gender-bending uh, cost- uh, high fashion nice. from the period. Uh, and so there's there's some really interesting things going on on stage. It's going to be really glorious to see how it all comes together. Sounds cool. What uh, When does it run, Randy? October 28th through November 13th. All right. Cool. Well, I want to thank you for joining me. I appreciate the time. Thank well, you. Thank you. It's fabulous. Good. Good. Well, thanks. The scene. I could not be wearier. Life could not be drearier. If I lived in Siberia. I'll tell you what I mean. This has been an Arts Interchange on WFHB. I'm Doug Storm. I produce the show. Joe Crawford is executive producer. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed the program. Monotonous for 30 days. Salt air I sniffed while I was shipwrecked and cast adrift with a man who looked like Montgomery Clift. Monotonous for what it's worth Throughout the earth I'm known as Fam Fidel But when the yawn comes up like thunder Brother, take back your Taj Mahal Jack Fath made a new style for me I even made Johnny Ray